This morning we're going to go back to the book of Ephesians where we have made it to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians and this will now be our 11th and final message from the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. We've been here for a very long time and as we've been working our way through this chapter since February, I trust that you have been as challenged as I have over the last months, but it's my prayer that you have actually become maybe even a little bit uncomfortable as we've made our way through the book of Ephesians from time to time, as we've enjoyed in instruction that has been just immensely practical. I know that my heart has been challenged. I trust that you have been challenged as well, but I want you to know that it is the discomfort that the Holy Spirit uses. This discomfort that you might feel is the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to prune you and to shape you and to make you mature in your faith that you would be not tossed around like an infant, like some sort of baby, but you would be well grounded in the knowledge of God as He reveals Himself through the pages of Scripture. So that's our goal, and I hope that you've been growing a little bit as we've been making our way through the book of Ephesians. But so far in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, we've been challenged that based on our privileged position in Jesus Christ, that we should no longer behave as those people who do not know God. We should not behave in the same way that we did before we came to our saving faith, before we came to a place of knowledge of God. We should behave very differently than we used to. We should put away all of the old habits. We should put away all of the old behaviors that are characteristic of people who do not know God. You see, people who do not know God speak falseness. We speak the truth in love. People who do not know God become angry over every little offense to themselves. We become righteously angry when people offend God. People who don't know God steal from others. We, the Bible tells us, are to do honest work that we may give to others who have need. People who don't know God speak rotten and corrupt words that destroy and they tear down. But people like us should be people who speak gracious and uplifting words at the precise proper moment to the edification and the building up of the people who are around us. That's what we should do as believers. That's what Paul teaches. But the truth of the matter is, if I'm being completely honest, that even though those behaviors are not the pattern of life for people of our position, you know, sometimes we slip up. Did you know that sometimes I slip up too? This would be a good place for collective gasp. (gasps) No, not you, Scott. I do. I slip up. In fact, I think (laughs) I think that as a general rule, we just have this propensity. We have this bent toward a particular behavior, and some of them may be behaviors such as these. And sometimes, in the heat of the moment, maybe in our anger, in what we call thumos, in our thumos, in a time of weakness, they may just come boiling out, and we may react in a way that's not really righteous, don't we? I think sometimes that happens. And you may say, as a pattern of life, I don't lie. I'm not someone who lies as a pattern of life, but I just got caught up in the moment and I told a lie and then I had to lie again to keep that lie from being found out and it just snowballed and the next thing you know, I'm caught in this trap of lies and I've got all kinds of problems. Or maybe you just had a moment of weakness. Maybe you had a moment of desperation and you stole something. And maybe it went well the first time and you thought, you know, really no one was hurt by that. And so I'm just going to try it again. And so the next thing you know that you've done it and you've kept moving until you've gotten into this trap that you feel like you just can't get out of. Or maybe you try really hard to keep corrupt and destructive talk from crossing your lips. 
Maybe like the psalmist, you've even prayed in Psalm 141, set a guard over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips, as Aaron had said to me a couple of weeks ago. But then, whatever happens, for whatever reason, your anger just boils up within you, and you use your words to cut down and to destroy. Have you ever done that? Sometimes that happens, doesn't it? But it doesn't mean that you're not a believer, does it? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a believer because you still love God. You still want to honor Him, but you just fall short sometimes. And before you've even realized it, you've made an unwise decision, which led to another unwise decision. And finally, you found yourself in this pattern of terrible behaviors before you even knew what happened. And I want you to know that it is possible for people who are believers to do that. You need to know that that's possible. It doesn't mean that you're going to hell. It means that you've made a few mistakes and now you've formed this pattern of behaviors that needs to be broken and it needs to be set right. And it's possible for people who are believers to do those kinds of things. But I want you to know that when that happens, you are doing what Paul cautions us against here in the 30th verse of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. I want to show you what that is. And the results of people who name Christ, the results of people who name Christ behaving like people who do not know God is what happens here in verse 30. So I'm going to take you now to verse 30 of Ephesians chapter 4, and we're just going to read this one verse for right now. It says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Unfortunately, I think this is a passage that over the years has been poorly taught to people over the years, and I think as such, it it tends to create some confusion in the minds of some people. And so I want to do my best this morning to help us understand this, because I don't think it's very complicated. First of all, what we need to do is we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and He is personal. It's important for us to know that the Holy Spirit is personal. He's not just some fantastic, distant entity who causes strange things to happen. And it's unfortunate that in some circles, the Holy Spirit carries with it this connotation of weirdness and strangeness, because that's not the way it is. The Holy Spirit is not some weird or strange force. He is personal. And you will remember that on several occasions, as we were going through the book of John a couple of years ago, on several occasions, John calls him by things that are personal. He uses names to identify him that are personal. He calls him a comforter. Did you know that? John says that the Holy Spirit is a helper. He says that he's your comforter. He's your helper. In the book of Romans, we tell it, the, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit has feelings. He has feelings. The book of 1 Corinthians has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he tells us that he has intellect or that he knows. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit knows things. 1 Corinthians also tells us that he works. The Holy Spirit has a will. And the Holy Spirit searches. These are all things that we find in the book of 1 Corinthians. Other places in the Bible, we find out that he speaks. We find out that he guides people in the way that they should go. We find out that he intercedes. So the Bible tells us that he can be insulted. Did you know that? The Bible tells us that he can be blasphemed. The Bible tells us that he can be resisted. He can be tested. All of these things. And so from all of these actions, we can conclude that the Holy Spirit is personal. He is personal. And as we see here in verse 30, guess what else? He can be grieved. The Holy Spirit may be grieved. So what does it mean to be grieved? I want to just talk about that with you for a few minutes if I could. I think it's easy enough for us to understand what it means to be grieved. What does it mean for you to grieve? It means for you to be caused pain or distress, doesn't it? It's to be sorrowful. It's to be heavy-hearted. 
kids to be grieved is to be sad. Do you see all those papers turn over real fast? They were drawing pictures of me on the backside, and then when I said that, they know what that means. Kids, <laughs> kids to be grieved is to be sad or to be sorrowful. We commonly speak to families or speak of families who have lost a loved one, and we say that they are what? They're grieving. They're grieving. Their hearts are heavy. They're grieving at the loss. When someone dear to us passes away, we feel pain, don't we? It hurts when we lose someone that we love. We feel distress in our hearts. We're sorrowful. We're heavy-hearted. Parents, I want to ask you a question. How do you feel when your children fall into some sinful behavior? How does that feel to you? You feel grieved, don't you? Don't you feel grieved? Why is that? It's because they are very personal and they are very special to you. Do you get that? And so it grieves you. Over the years, you have worked very hard to provide for your kids, haven't you? Over the years, you've searched for them, haven't you? You've done all of these same actions that the Holy Spirit has spoken of. You've searched for them when they've been lost. Maybe you've searched for them when they stayed out too late at a friend's house, when they stayed out past curfew. You speak to them often and you've poured your heart out to them. You've done your very best to guide them in the way that they should go. You've helped them to understand the Word of God. You've helped them to understand who they are in Christ. And you've tried to help them to understand who they are as young people. You've helped them to understand the giftings and the talents that God has given them. And you've done your very best to help them find the best vocations to use those giftings and talents. Haven't you done those things? That's what a good responsible parent does. You do those things. You've done your very best to help them learn how to exercise those gifts and those abilities so that they can provide financial security for themselves. You've interceded for them, praying day and night. Does that sound like what you've done, parents? And then for whatever reason, this child whom you love so much has come along and he's committed a violation that's very personal against you and he's hurt you and violated all of those things. And I wonder, what have you thought? What have you felt? when your child made this terrible decision that caused them to fall into some sort of situation that you know is not healthy for them. You've seen your child, maybe they've developed friendships or maybe they developed habits that you know are not healthy and you fear that they're going to fall into some form of physical harm. How did that make you feel, parents? Maybe they've made a wrong decision in choosing a mate and they've chosen to be partnered together with an unbeliever. How did that make you feel, parents? Maybe they're not giving the effort at school. Maybe they're wasting a gift or a talent that God has given them and their future seems uncertain. How does it make you feel as a parent? I can tell you that as a parent, I know how it makes me feel. And I suspect it makes you feel the same way. Do you feel distressed? I think you do. Do you feel sorrowful when that happens? Do you feel heavy-hearted? Of course you do. Do you know why? Because you're grieved over it. You feel grieved over it, don't you? And it makes you sorrowful. It makes you sad. So if I could just depart from Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. I want to share something with our young people. When we finally make it to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to learn what Paul means when he says in Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise. And I don't want to go too deeply into this this morning, young people, because I know all of you as Gru would say, have pins and needles that you're sitting on, waiting for us to get to this verse in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 6. I know you are. Parents, you are probably really waiting. But don't, don't get too excited, parents, because we have some pretty 
solid instruction for you in chapter 6 as well. But listen, kids, for you to grieve your parents is to do the exact opposite of honoring them. Do you hear that? To grieve your parents is to dishonor them, kids. To grieve your parents is to dishonor them. You see, God put your parents in your life to guide you in the way that you should go. God put your parents in your life to protect you. They teach you. They care for you. They sacrifice for you. I want you to just take a few minutes, kids, to think about all the things that your parents do in your lives. They teach you. They watch over you. They protect you. They provide for you. They are not a bunch of grown-up buzzkills. That's not what parents are. You see, listen, they are appointed by God to raise you up in accordance to the instruction of Scripture. That is the parent's job. And for you to grieve them is for you to dishonor them, knowing all that they have done for you, knowing all that they do on a daily basis for you. How can you willingly and deliberately and thoughtlessly distress them and cause them sorrow? How can you do that? How could you do that to your parents who have provided for you? How can you willingly cause them to be heavy hearted? How can you do things that you know are going to make them sad and cause grief in their hearts? How can you show such ingratitude to them after all they've done for you? Now, I want you to understand that the same principle is true of the Holy Spirit. You hear? God has given us the Holy Spirit to guide us, in the way that we should go and to protect us and to keep us from wrong things. God has given us the Holy Spirit to teach us and to care for us and to illuminate Scripture and help us to understand the truth of God. And verse 30 tells us that not only that, He actually sealed us to the day of redemption. And this is so interesting. The Holy Spirit, friends, is God's down payment on your future perfection that you will receive as a child of God. You need to know that. He is a down payment on your future, per, your future perfection. The Holy Spirit is a mark who seals you and He authenticates the work that has already happened in your heart. He authenticates the fact that the work that God has done in your heart is genuine. He is the tag that is stamped on you that says this one is authentic. This is the real deal. I don't know, maybe some of you have an appreciation for name brand things. Uh, maybe if you're a Harley owner, you like genuine Harley Davidson apparel, right? I mean, if your boots don't have that stamp on them that say Harley Davidson, then they're not really Harley Davidson boots, right? I mean, they're knockoffs. I can tell you I've learned the hard way that you never buy a teenage girl boots that don't say UGG on the back of them. You don't do that. they got to be UGGs. Dad, those aren't UGGs. Well, they look like them. Well, they're not. <laughs> you are not a knockoff. And when the Holy Spirit puts His stamp on your life, He is authenticating. He puts a stamp on your life and it says, Scott is not a knockoff. He is an authentic, he is a genuine, he is a real, kids, a real member of the family of God. You understand? That's the point of the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul is saying to you, how can you grieve the one who bears witness to the fact that you are the real deal? How could you grieve that one? 
How could you cause distress? Remember all of the things that he's done for us. How can you willingly distress the one who comforts you? How can you deliberately distress and cause pain to the one who helps you? Why would you cause sorrow to the one who shows you the way that you should go? Why would you do that? It was a lot more pleasant when we were talking about the kids, wasn't it? After all he's done for you, why would you cause the Holy Spirit to feel distressed? Why would you cause the Holy Spirit to feel sorrowful after all that He's done for you? Why would you do that? And Paul says, do not cause the Holy Spirit to feel heavy-hearted. Don't cause the Holy Spirit to be filled with sorrow. How can you grieve Him like that? How can you show such ingratitude, my friends, for what the Holy Spirit has done to you? How can you show such ingratitude toward Him? How can you grieve Him like that? So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Does anyone know? I want to show you, because I think this is where we find some of the confusion. Because for some reason, I think what happens is some people seem to have determined that any violation of their own little pet theologies constitutes a grieving of the Holy Spirit, and that's not the way it works. It's really quite simple. And so I wanted to illustrate it for you. I want to give you an example from the Old Testament, if I may. Speaking of the people of Israel, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says in chapter 63 and verse 9, this is what He says, In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. So this is what He's done for them. He lifted them up and He carried them all the days of old, but they did what? They rebelled and they grieved His Holy Spirit. They rebelled and they grieved His Holy Spirit. So what is it that men and women of Israel had done that had grieved the Holy Spirit? They had rebelled. They had been living in rebellion. And so now I want to take you back to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to remind you of this command. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know that the command is in this portion of Ephesians for a reason. It's not attached to your pet theology. It is in this section of the book of Ephesians for a purpose. It's because Paul is articulating for you behavioral patterns that are not fitting for people of the church body who are genuine believers who have the stamp of the Holy Spirit on their lives saying, this one is the real deal. If they've got that authenticating tag of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, these behaviors are not fitting for you if you have that tag. Listen, then he says, people who are genuine members of the family of God, people who have the authenticating tag of the Holy Spirit, they don't lie. He says, they don't steal. They don't become angry about the wrong things. They don't use their words to tear down. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is telling us what it looks like. And then he immediately follows that instruction with verse 30 saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. He put it there on purpose. He put it there for a reason. So what is it that brings sorrow and sadness to the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the rebellious nature, it is the rebellion in your lives that causes you to behave like this. That's what he's saying. What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? What is it that makes the Holy Spirit sad? It's the rebellious nature. It's the rebellious behavior of speaking falsehood. It's the the rebellious behavior of becoming angry over offenses to you personally rather than offenses that are intended toward God. It's not doing honest work for a living, but stealing. It's using your words to tear down. This is what Paul is saying. This is rebellion, and this is how you offend the Holy Spirit. And listen, things have not changed since Old Testament times. I want you to know that. It's still the same today. Kids, it is rebellion that offends the Holy Spirit. 
It is rebellion that grieves the Holy Spirit. And just to make sure that you've gotten the point, I'm going to take you now to verse 31, and you're going to see this really interesting progression. Take a look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Listen, when you begin to allow your heart to entertain and to play around with sin, I want you to know that it tends to grow. Do you understand that? When you play around with sin and you incubate it, it's going to germinate and it's going to grow and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And typically what happens is one sin will lead to another. And because of your sinful nature, even the believer's sin will tend to grow. Even the believer's sin will grow. And eventually what happens is inner sins like bitterness, inner sins like wrath, they will work their way to the outward expressions of clamor and slander. Do you see this? It's a progression. They will work their way out. So listen to me. If you allow bitterness to build up in your hearts, if you reflect on and if you brood over some sort of grudge that you have, if you think about and just hold on to something that someone has done wrong to you, you are going to develop an irritability that will lead you to the thumos or the angry outburst that we spoke about several weeks ago. I want you to know that. That's anger. And that's what will happen. And then what will happen is your wrath or your anger will erupt over things that are unrighteous. And then what will happen is that your wrath and your anger will soon manifest themselves in clamor, which is a tumultuous public outcry. I want you to think about that for a second. Clamor. It's public outbursts. That's what clamor is. It's being out of control and just shouting. Just shouting out and causing a public stir. Have you ever seen that? It's people who have absolutely no shame in public. They have absolutely no shame. They don't care what people think about them. They don't care about their public displays of unruliness. They don't care what people think about that. That's clamor. They don't care at all what people may say or think about them. They don't care how they may affect other people. That's clamor. And so they'll shout out profanity. They'll shout out blasphemy. They'll shout out slander. And Paul tells us that At the end of verse 31, it all comes from one place. He says, put away all what? Malice. And I want to help you understand that word in the Greek. It's the Greek word kakia. And it just means bad things. Kakia is just badness. It's just bad things. Now think about this. It's just moral depravity. It's just this badness that is in you that you hold on to. And from this badness, from this bankruptcy that you have internally, you're allowing these bad things to come out. That's where all sin is born. That's where it all comes from. It's where all sin lives and where all sin finds its expression. And Paul says, put kakia away. Put all of that away. Get rid of it. You're supposed to take that off and throw it away. And so it's interesting to me, as I was looking at these behaviors, to note that all of these things that Paul mentions here, they're sins of conflict with other people. Had you thought about that? They're sins of conflict between people. They create division. And I want you to know that they destroy relationships. And when they occur with people in your position, when people of your position allow these things to exist in your own hearts, these behaviors make their way into the church and they create disunity and they break the bond of peace in the body of Christ. That's what happens. If you hang on to them and you bring them here, that's what's going to happen. And when that happens, the church becomes weak. When that happens, the church becomes ineffective. Friends, listen to me. If we allow our sin and our selfishness 
to make their way into relationships right here at Root River Church, you can be sure that our witness to the people in our surrounding communities will be damaged and it will be less effective. Do you know why? Because that's the way every other relationship in the world looks, right? That's how every other relationship in the world looks. And when the world looks at that and they realize that we are refusing to take off the old habits and the old patterns of life, our relationships look just like every other relationship in the world and we have absolutely nothing to commend ourselves to our community. They say, what makes you so different? What makes you so special? You behave just like everybody else. You don't behave any differently. And so there's nothing to commend ourselves to our community and make them think, you know what, there's something unique about that place. There's something unique about the people that go to that place. But on the other hand, Paul says, look at verse 32. He says, putting away all of those things, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Friends, if we're going to get rid of rebellion, you need to understand if we ever want to be rid of evil thoughts, if we ever want to be rid of evil words, if you ever want to be rid of evil action, you have to purify your thought lives. You have to purify your thought lives. And in order for you to do that, you need to remind yourselves what we found in verse 32. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. These are all behaviors, listen, that God has first taken toward you. Did you know that? God was first kind to you. God was first tenderhearted to you. God first was forgiving of you. And when you realize that, then it's a lot easier for us to let go of those behaviors toward other people, isn't it? I mean, Romans 2.4 tells us that God's kindness to us is actually meant to lead us to repentance. Did you know that? It's God's kindness that led us to repentance. If God hadn't shown kindness to you, friends, you would not have ever repented. You never would have been saved. Did you know that? Without God's kindness, you would still be lost. But God was kind to us even while we were still sinners, the Bible teaches. And that same kindness of God that sought us out and led us to repentance is the same kind of kindness that each of you should demonstrate as a pattern of life to the members of your family, to the people in your workplace, and especially to those people right here in the church. You should be kind. I want to help you understand what this means. It's talking of a moral goodness. It's speaking of a graciousness in manners. You get that? My kids and I had a great conversation about this just yesterday. We should be considerate and we should be gracious with one another. We should not be thoughtless. We should be gracious and we should be thoughtful toward one another. We should not be insensitive. We should not be boorish. In conversation with one another, this is so important. Listen to this, okay? Now you may not you may not like that I'm <laughs> you can be mad at me for this maybe. But listen, in conversations with one another, your conversation should be directed away from yourself and onto other people. It doesn't hurt you to talk about other people and find out well, wait, wait, let me correct that. <laughs> I'm not encouraging you to talk about other people. What I'm saying to you is that you do well to take your eyes off yourself and invest in the person that's standing right in front of you. But don't invest in them when they're not there and talk behind their backs. That's, that's what, the opposite of what I was going for. You see, your manners should be considered of the people around you. Kids, we should not be rude and impolite to one another. You know, walking through Walmart or through Sam's Club as it was with us yesterday and you hear somebody just belch out really loud right there in front of the, the whole entire store, it's rude, isn't it? And our behavior should not be boorish. Our behavior should not be rude. It should be kind. 
It should be considerate of other people. And it should take other people's feelings into consideration first. And then Paul goes on to say that we should be tender-hearted toward one another. We should be tender-hearted. And some of you may remember, and I'm just going to explain this quickly to you, but some of you may remember back in Ephesians chapter 1 that I told you the difference between the cardia, which is the heart, and the splanchnon, which is kind of the bowels or the stomach. And if you remember, I mentioned that for us, the heart is the bed of emotion, right? I love you with all of my heart, which means I love you with all of my emotion. Isn't that what you're trying to convey? I love you with all of my heart. But that's not how it was for the ancients and especially for the Hebrews. This is what they said. When they wanted to convey a message of feeling, do you know where it was? It was in their bowels. It was in their stomach. Husbands, don't try that with your wives. I'm, I'm just telling you, but I'm just telling you, this is the way it was. The feeling, the feeling part of their body was in their stomach. And at the time that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, that's where people felt their emotions was in their stomachs. And that's where all the emotion was. Now listen, so the Greek word for bowels or stomach or the bed of emotion was splanchnon. Okay? There are a lot of places in the Bible where I could show you that, but I'm going to take you just to 1 John 3.17, and I want you to see this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart, this is his splanchnon, against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's splanchnon. That's your bowels. That's your emotion. That's your guts. How can you claim, Jesus says, that you love God and see a fellow believer in need and not be emotionally moved deep within your being, deep within your stomach to help him. So splanchnon is that emotion. Now, for this concept of tenderheartedness, that's the word that is used. The only thing is that Paul took this word splanchnon and then he added to the front of it the word ew, which means good. So what he's saying is good feeling from your stomach. Get it? So for you to be tender-hearted is for you to have this good feeling from your stomach, from your emotion about them. So here's what it sounds like. You have this empathy for the needs of those people way down deep inside of you. This empathy wells up. This compassion just fills you and it comes gushing out of you. That's tender-heartedness. You follow me? Tender-heartedness, kids, is a deep sense of empathy. It's a deep sense of compassion. Kids, compassion for those who are around you. I don't want to tell you, I see that developing right here at Root River Church. I'm going to tell you specifically one place where I see it, and it's in our Bloom women's group. I see that happening in the women's group. I can see this tenderheartedness developing in this group of people. And I can see you having deep empathy and love for one another and compassion for one another. I want you to know that I recognize that, that you want to help each other. And I commend you for that. I'm, I'm thankful for that. And that's precisely how people of your position should treat other people. You get it? That's precisely how you should do it. And you're just following the scriptural pattern. You're doing the things that you should do, and it's just coming out of you. That's the way it should be right here in the church body. But the kindness, kids, and the most tender-hearted expression that you can make for one another is to extend forgiveness. The kindest thing that you can do for one another is to extend forgiveness to them. I'm often reminded of Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus tells the story of a man who owed a king a great sum of money. You all know this, don't you? And the king kindly and graciously forgave the man of this huge overwhelming debt. And then the man who had been forgiven so much, so much that he could never have paid it in his lifetime, went out and found someone who owed him just a small amount and he had that person thrown into prison. This ungrateful, boorish, thankless man who had been forgiven so much 
would not forgive the one who owed him so little. I want you to allow that to sink in. Here's why. Because Christ's intent in telling you that story is to illustrate how unimaginable it is for you to have been forgiven such a great offense against God, against a holy God, and then you turn around and refuse to forgive someone who's committed a smaller offense against you. It happens every day. Listen, when God forgave you in Christ, you owed Him a huge debt. And the only way for you to pay for it was through death and through eternal suffering. Your debt was so enormous that the judgment of death had been declared for you. The ruling is already in. Yet, now listen, in His kindness, in His compassion, in His tenderheartedness, God forgave you of all of it. Of every single ounce of it. Now, Paul says, it is to that extent... It is to that same extent, that extent to which God has forgiven you, to that same extent, you should be kindly and tenderheartedly extending forgiveness to people who have offended you. You following me? It is that model of forgiveness that you are supposed to mimic. It is that model of forgiveness that you're supposed to copy in your relationships with others. I want you to know that I recognize that there are people right here in this room who have been badly, badly hurt by other people. I know that's true. I know that people have said and done things to you that have hurt you so badly, and as a result of those hurts that have been piling up in your life, sometimes you struggle to extend forgiveness, don't you? I'm not suggesting that you should stay in a terrible situation out of a sense of obligation to extend forgiveness, but ultimately... You need to forgive those who have offended you. At some point, you have to relieve them of the debt. And you have to say, this debt is covered. I mean, how ungrateful. Think about it. How ungrateful of us, after all the Holy Spirit has done for us, to refuse to extend forgiveness to others. How ungrateful do you think it is, after all that He's done for us, for us to refuse to separate ourselves from the old patterns and behaviors that are characteristic of people who don't know God. How ungrateful is that? How ungrateful for us to continue to cling to our old patterns of life. How ungrateful we must appear to the Holy Spirit when we, in our rebellion, persist in behaviors that we know bring sorrow to Him that we know bring sadness, that we know bring heavy-heartedness, that we know bring distress and sorrow to Him, and we persist in it. How ungrateful must we appear when we do that? So as I wrap it up, I think it's fitting for us to conclude this chapter the same way that Paul opened it in verse 1. We've come to the end of chapter 4. Listen closely. This I say... And I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as those who don't know God and the futility of their minds based on all that you know, based on all that you have learned over these last months. Listen to me. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you've received. Don't allow your behavior to cause sorrow 
Don't allow your behavior to bring grief to the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank You for Your kindness. I thank You that You care so much. And I'm so thankful for that kindness because without that, I wouldn't have ever repented. I never would have come to a place of right standing through my faith in Jesus Christ. I thank You that You intervened. I thank You that You care so much that You sent Him on my behalf and that You tenderheartedly and compassionately extended forgiveness for every last debt that I owed You. Now, Lord, to that same extent, I pray that You would make Root River Church a body of believers who kindly, tenderheartedly extend gracious forgiving whatever the cost to those who have offended us. Let us stand out as people who don't carry grudges the way that the people who do not know God carry grudges. Let our behavior as we walk around in this world be a testimony to them that we serve a gracious and loving God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.